Today we have Neil Bawa on the show. Neil Bawa is an expert in the multifamily industry, and he sees build to rent as the hottest part of real estate right now. Neil believes that population demographic shifts are not only important, but they're all that matters when selecting markets to invest in. Neil also believes that blockchain and smart contracts will bring syndication 2.0. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Neil Bawa before we start the show. Neil has been involved in over 30 projects and 3,300 units, valued at over 900 million, of which 400 million is under development. Neil is known for being a guy who invests in markets based on the data, specifically demographic data. Neil shares his views on which markets to invest in, build to rent, as well as how blockchain technology and smart contracts will effectively create syndication 2.0. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We have the one and the only Neil Bawa. Neil, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Great to be here. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, This is the first time that we're actually going to be talking to each other, um, but Neil is all over social media and anybody that is in multifamily knows about Neil. So I'm very excited about this conversation and um, get to know and pick his brain a little bit. So to start with, how many properties and how many units are you currently invested in? 30 projects, 3,300 units, about... 900 million of which 400 million are in construction. Wow. Wow. So you have a nickname, the mad scientist. So how did you get that nickname? Well, so I teach a lot of data analytics courses about figuring out the best cities in the United States to invest in. And these courses are a bit geeky, right? They're, I try to make them as fun as I can, but they're still geeky. And I, so I was teaching at a conference in Denver. It's called the Best Ever Conference. There were about 500 people listening. After I finished my presentation, I come back, I come off the stage. And as, as usual, you know, presenters have a bunch of people around them. We're waiting for you as you come down, right? <laughs> right, right. So, they, you know, I, I get surrounded by people. One of them says, you know, this was an amazing presentation. I felt like you were the mad scientist of multifamily explaining everything to me. And I was like, oh, thank you. And there was a person just like you, he was standing next to the, the other person. He didn't say anything, but as it happened three days later, I was on his podcast. So he said, you know, three days ago I met so-and-so and he said he was the mad scientist of multifamily. So he used that term. 
And then like two months later, I go to a podcast and someone else is referring to this That's guy. That's so funny. And then eventually they started calling me the mad scientist. I'm like, I think I agree with this, right? I, I try to take crazy concepts that have nothing to do with real estate, like, you know, demographics, and I apply them to real estate. And then basically I measure to see if it, they work or not. And so the mad scientist moniker made sense. So I adopted it. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You're, you're a big data guy from what I'm, from what I hear is that you, you love to crunch numbers and then use other data to, to apply to real estate and multifamily. And, and I think that's fantastic. Hey, one thing I wanted to, um, I don't know much about this, so I'm very interested to hear your, your say. So when you think of like the stock market versus real estate and, you know, talk about having people diversify and get into real estate, you know, there's a lot of people that are fearful of doing that. And one of the big, I guess, disadvantages is that you lose liquidity, right? So you, you invest in one of these syndications and, you know, it's three, four, five, six years, you could be invested in that deal. So there's talk about using, you know, tokens, using crypto to do tokenization where the passives would have the ability to have some liquidity. So I don't know how that works. Um, I know that you've talked on it a little bit, so I wanted to get your take. Tokenization is syndication 2.0. We are moving from web 2.0 to web three, right? So you hear that term web three a lot these days. Right. And web three is essentially a version of the internet that is built on something known as the blockchain. The blockchain was invented in 2009 when Bitcoin was invented. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency that runs on a, a platform called the blockchain. And while people have made lots of money on Bitcoin, it's clear that lots of investors are uncomfortable with the nature of crypto and the fact that it's not really backed by anything and the fact that all governments hate it. But something bigger that came out of the whole crypto Bitcoin revolution was this concept of having a platform on the internet that would be distributed, meaning it's not on this Google web server or that Amazon web server. It's actually distributed across millions of computers on the web. And those computers get some benefit for allowing that distribution to continue. And so, and it's a register. It's basically a transaction register, glorified transaction register. And by registering those transactions and simply no one having access to change existing register, uh, you know, entries in the register, people found a new way of doing things. And now this concept of blockchain has become vastly superior and bigger to the concept of cryptocurrency. In fact, today, I would say al almost 90% of the reason why cryptocurrencies have such high prices is because of blockchain. People are not really thinking about cryptocurrencies. They're thinking about which cryptocurrency can support blockchains and smart contracts. So smart contracts are a way to take any physical object, right? Could be a real estate, could be stock, could be anything, right? Well, stocks are digital anyway, but take a physical object and sell it or fractionalize it on the blockchain using a lot of clauses in the smart contract. For example, one of the clauses that people in multifamily, people like Darren are thinking, you know, okay, so I buy this $10 million multifamily and I decide to basically fractionalize 5% of my equity raise, right? So, you know, I, I was going to raise 3 million, I'm raising 2.9 you know, million and I'm, I have $100,000 and I sell these tokens on the web. 
then I don't know who the hell these people are because that's how tokenization works. What if I sell the building? What happens then? The answer is, well, Darren, when you create the token, you're going to have a smart contract attached to it. And that smart contract says that even though this is a securitized token offering or STO, another fancy name, you have the right to sell the building. And when you do, all you basically have to do is give people their portion of the profits, their portion of the returns, and that's it. You're not obligated to do anything else. You also have the right, by the way, this is not like Bitcoin. You know, you, Darren's, you've heard, you know, with lots of people who had Bitcoin, their wallets got stolen, their, right. their hacking is happening right. all the time. There's still a lot of a fear related to that, right? Exactly. Here, the issuer has control over the token. The issuer has control over the token. And, you know, in case there's a wallet that's for an investor that's hacked, you can just basically go in and replace their tokens with new ones and invalidate the ones on the web, right? And so people might be like, so, so far this sounds like syndication. The answer is it's syndication version 2.0 for a lot of different reasons. Number one, no syndicator in the U.S. can make a credible claim that their syndications are liquid. A few people have had made some few interesting measures. But as a whole, one would say that if 100,000 syndication shares are sold, 100,000 syndication shares are illiquid. But tokenization is powerful because of the fact that it's on the blockchain. And because of the fact that there are $2 trillion worth of cryptocurrency essentially on the same blockchain, right? So now there's all these uh, cryptonaires, Darren, cryptonaires stands for uh, people <laughs> who became millionaires, millionaires. using cryptos, yeah, right. right? And all these cryptonaires, and most of them are very young people. So the average age of a cryptonaire is like 25, 26, something like that, right? Very all these nice. people <laughs> are cryptonaires. They're all over the world because of the nature of, of, block, you know, of Bitcoin mining and Ethereum mining. They're all over the world. And most of their governments absolutely hate what they're doing. So they're constantly threatening to shut down Bitcoin and shut down Ethereum and prevent mining and all these kinds of things. You hear more and more about this stuff, right? Because governments are getting threatened by digital currency, which I don't think is a fad, by the way. I think digital currency is here to stay. The governments will simply have to adapt to it, but they're going to try their damnedest best to kill these things before they adapt to them. And so what's happening is all these cryptonaires, what's the one thing that they want? They want something tangible because they don't know if their millions of dollars in Bitcoin can vanish overnight. Right. right. And exchanges get hacked almost on a daily basis. I would say there's at least one hack, big, major multi-million dollar hack somewhere. So these people are scared. And so they want tangible access to something. And what's more tangible than multifamily real estate in the number one market in the world, the United States. Right. Uh, and might say, you know, sure. I mean, I could sell my syndication shares outside the United States. Right. I could do that before. The answer is, Yes, but how many of us do it? It is a huge hassle. It is, where are you going to find the investors? How do you figure out if they have the money? You have sure. to deal with all of the SEC regulations. You, you know, so nobody really on a practical basis does it. I've, I've heard of this one syndicator who had this one guy from Kuwait invest $4 million and then it got stuck for six months and you know, all kinds of bad stuff happened. But on a practical basis, if there's 100,000 syndication shares in American multifamily, I'd say 99.9% .9 of those are people that live here, right? Right. So we haven't actually ever been able to explore markets outside the United States. And it, it wouldn't work for tokenization either, except for the, for the Bitcoin factor. There are exchanges throughout the world with 
millions of daily eyeballs of people buying, you know, angry monkey pictures or NFTs <laughs> for $175,000 each. Why? Because they have a very filthy amount of money. The newly rich don't know how to spend their money. But what if we could give them something that actually has tangible value in cash flow? And that's what tokenization does. It basically extends a pretty stable US market of syndication to a worldwide market. And then eventually, and this is here's the key part that most people don't know, Darren. Do you know that it's legal for you to issue a syndication share or and then tokenize it subsequently? And then one year later, that share, that token that you've created, this digital version of your syndication, can be sold to a non-accredited investor in the US. Mm -mm. You can sell it all day long because a year after the original syndication was created, the SEC allows you to basically sell it to non-accredited investors one year later. That's mm. true liquidity. And why, and this is not a rule, new rule, by the way, you could, you could do it with, with syndications from before. But why do people not do it? The answer is simple. The liquidity has to have eyeballs. And because a syndicator doesn't make money by simply giving liquidity to their investors, they're not spending hundreds or thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on these exchanges, right? To list their assets. But here's the beautiful thing. Now those exchanges exist and they were not created for syndication shares. They were created to trade crypto. And all of a sudden there's hundreds of millions of people with crypto wallets with huge amounts of money in them, right? There were a thousand people that registered for a, a single family home that was sold in Florida a few weeks ago, 634,000, I think was the selling price. A thousand people registered, each one of them, each one of those people had to have, had to show that they had $634,000 worth of crypto in their wallet before they were allowed to register. Holy cow. So all of those people had three quarters of a million dollars, right? So on a practical basis, this is nothing new. You're not doing anything new. You're simply taking a concept that already existed that really didn't have any scalability whatsoever in addressing a non-US market and addressing a non-accredited market. And now you're addressing it because of some other phenomenon called cryptocurrency. That's the power of tokenization right there. Let me ask a few follow-up questions related to that. So in today's syndication, say somebody was going to change the entity that they, that they had, own, had the ownership in. So they would do an assignment, you know, of a legal document. With the blockchain, you wouldn't have to do that anymore. Is that correct? Yeah, because the ownership of the asset, the beautiful thing about the blockchain is this. The blockchain makes mistakes very difficult. The blockchain makes fraud very difficult. It's actually, it's already documented that when a brick and mortar real estate business moves to the blockchain, fraud falls by more than 95%. Because if the two lawyers are talking with each other, they can bring a technologist into the room, pull the register from the web, and who, we, one can immediately see who owns the asset, right? Because no one can change that register, not even a government. Right? So fraud falls precipitously because we're seeing fraud. I, I come from India where people basically are suing somebody. They go on a vacation, they come back, their home's in somebody else's name because somebody has created a fake claim deed, filed it with the registrar, and now says, well, I own this house. And then you're fighting them in court for 20 years. That happens all the time. How the heck do you manage to do that with the blockchain? So it's almost impossible to fake these things. I'm not saying it is impossible, it's practically impossible. 
right? So fraud goes down when you take those kinds of assets there. A lot of transactions can be real time. You can sell your shares in real time. You can buy your shares in real time. And once again, I, wa I wanna keep saying this, people, you know, every time I talk about this, people are like, yeah, but I could create a platform. And on that platform, I could, you know, do this. And this technology has already existed. It's nothing new. You're absolutely right. It's existed for 10 years. In fact, syndication technology has existed for longer than that. But it's the tipping point. It's the hundreds of millions of wallets with money in them. Right. That's the value here, not the technology. Right. So that's what we're looking at. Once you get to the point where Darren's syndication investors, and by the way, every syndication investor can choose. Isn't that cool, right? You can have 100 investors in a project and 70 of them can choose to tokenize and 30 of them can choose to not. The fact is that all 100 of them are un un unlikely to transact for a year. There are some very strict rules where you don't want to transact these tokens in the first year because you literally can only transact with the other investors in the same project or some accredited investor. So it, it, it's, there's this one year gap that the SEC has built into, into it, beyond which, beyond which you can go plug it on an online exchange and say, hey, this token was $1,000. I bought it a year ago. Now the property is doing well. You know, here's more information. It's worth 150. And you might say, you know, uh, you know well, it's worth 1500. So, you know, it was worth 1000, it's worth 1500. You might say, why would people buy into this? Well, these are the same people that are buying into cryptocurrencies and NFTs, which are, you know, grumpy monkey pictures. <laughs> grumpy monkey pictures. That's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole- How long NFT, do you think it's going to take to move from syndication 1.0 to 2.0? I'm predicting that in 10 years, 99% of all syndications will be tokenized simply because the syndicators don't have much of a choice here. This is just going to become the thing. And anyone who thinks, well, this is not going to happen- Investors are going to demand it. They're, they're going to demand it because you think about it 10 years ago, the number of mid-market syndicators that had investor portals like Juniper Square or Investor Deal Room sure. was about you know, less than 1%, right? So there was only one company in the space 10 years ago. Today, if you have a $500 million portfolio, the chances that you don't pay for that are extraordinarily low. Right. But in the end, all that portal gives you is just an investor can see their K1s and they can see their shares and they can see their distributions in one place. It's highly convenient. And, right? and, and it makes the, the signing of the docs easier. Um, signing of the docs. You know, so right, there's, right. there's a lot of convenience and, and safety assuredness pieces to this. But still, 100% of syndicators today that are you know, at a certain level do it, right? right. But this is at a different level because it gives liquidity and yeah. true liquidity. That's and huge. Unreasonable profits to investors. And the investor gets to make that decision. It's going to get crammed down our throats, whether we like it or not. All right. So I want to move on, but I want to ask another follow-up question. So valuation. So in a syndication, you know, you've got distributions that may be monthly or quarterly or you know, every six months, whatever it is that per the, per the project. Um, and then at the end of the year, the syndicator has to provide fair market value to really to on, only to the investors that invested in a self-directed IRA, yeah. you know, to the custodian. And so that 
fair market value number is once a year and it's only really sent to the ones that have that self-direct. So now if you have that liquidity, who is creating that fair market value on a daily basis? No one's creating it on a daily basis, I, but I think it will become more com So firstly, you know, since we all calculate it once in a year anyway, right, we're probably going to calculate it twice a year and we're going to have a, you know, everyone's going to have a page on a portal. Like for example, I don't own eBay, but I can sell stuff on eBay. I don't own Amazon, but I can sell stuff on Amazon. So part of the job of a syndicator, let's say Darren's a syndicator and he has six projects. Part of his job will become that there's a web page on that Amazon-like website where he displays information about his projects, provides updates. And those updates basically could be four times a year. Some syndicators will do it twice a year. Some will still do it once in a year. And the syndicators that provide more detail and provide more upside, visible upside to their projects, their tokens are probably going to be worth more. But very few tokens are going to be less than face value because right. real estate, unlike Bitcoin, is tangible. So it's unlikely that the, if the property is doing even okay, that the existing investors will not buy it if it falls below a dollar because the existing investors know a ton about the property and remember, before this stuff is all listed, a year has already passed. Right. Right. So what is the downside is not much of tokenization because, you know, if tokens fall to 80 cents, somebody's going to pick them up. Right. Because it's like, oh, they're on sale. Right. Why would anybody sell them at a, a, a buck? Just stay with your syndication. Right? right. If the project's not doing well, you're illiquid. But if the project's doing well, now you are liquid. <laughs> right? right. And there's right. a speculative element. And in, in any asset, we've seen speculative elements these, uh, you know, kindred spirits where people basically just make mistakes. I mean, look at GameStop, right? The company is, in my opinion, it's a very shitty company doing poorly. Which stock went up, what, 6X, 8X, 10X? I mean, just because of speculation. Whenever speculation enters into a space, there tends to be an upward momentum in general, though obviously there'll be periods of downward momentum as well, right? But it's generally an upward momentum. What we found is any stock, any asset that becomes liquid is now worth more simply because it is liquid. Not no other reason. Right. And so that effect will happen to real estate over the next few years. And I think that there are many other things, very complex, but you can get like, for example, right now, if Darren has a hundred thousand dollars syndication in, in, in a share in Neil Bauer's project, it's illiquid, right? Right. But do you know that if you had $100,000 worth of tokens, you can actually stake those tokens on the web and get $100,000 back? 100,000, 100% leverage on an illiquid asset. That's crazy. That's absolutely insane. So, so you, could, you can still own your share in the syndication, but then you can take stake it. Lever leverage on that? You can lever it. To 100%, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 100%. That's, that's crazy. Now, how does that apply to, say, I know we're going to go through the phase-out period, but bonus depreciation. If you, if you ended up, you know, levering it up and then invested in another syndication with, that, with those funds, would you get the depreciation on that as well? There's no easy way to answer that question because you have to kind of understand the specific time frame of when the sale was made, when were the tokens actually sold. The truth is that the token holder should be entitled to every benefit in the project. That's really what the law says. 
Now, as to whether how that law gets implemented, I don't know. There's going to be this stuff is going to be non-compliant for a while, Darren. Sure. Because when syndication started, it was non-compliant for years. People were doing all kinds of 506B stuff that we know is bad. And eventually, the SEC came down on it. They issued guidances. See, the SEC plays a good role. I mean, they're, they're, everybody loves to hate the SEC. I love to hate the SEC. But eventually, <laughs> the SEC will beat up the first guy and put them out of business, beat up the second guy. But by the third guy, they issue guidance. And then more and more people start following that guidance. And that's how progress works. Everything, every business in the U.S., is out of compliance until they're in compliance. Right. And I don't think that this is going to be any different. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that concept is, is huge for real estate that because the difference between the stock market and real estate, that liquidity piece could be changed. And I also like that you it, said it that mm-hmm. the investors can choose whether they want to have it be tokenized or not. Or tokenize it later. So all of those options are available to them, right? And you could have some investors playing with those tokens and driving up the costs. And the syndicator could send an email to the investor saying, do you know today the dollar token is at $1.51 on T0, right? So syndicators will keep track of this. It's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of extra work for us, but it also is kind of something that we'll feel good about if the tokens are going up. Right. Absolutely. So it's, it's a natural market. There's always fear. What if my property, what if my token drops to like 90 cents on the dollar? Have I lost 10%? No, because a token is not money unless you sell it, Darren. It's only proof of ownership. It's only money on the day you sell it. Well, don't sell it. You know that the property is doing okay, right? Right, right. So how could you have lost 10 cents, right? All you've lost is 10 cents if you have a liquidity crunch. And in all the syndication that you invested in the last 15 years, whenever you had a liquidity crunch, you never had any choice but to right. stick it all the way through. Right. So there's going to be certain examples where a property is not doing well, where you still are illiquid. But there's going to be many more examples where you actually have the ability to trade your tokens like an asset, like a tradable asset. And you're going to have fun doing it. You're going to have arbitrage. You're going to have short selling. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff will happen. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. All right. I'm going to move on to something else. I thank you for sharing that because I did not fully understand. I've heard it talked about um, and it makes a lot of sense at a, at a 30,000 foot level that there should be a way to, to use that to, um, to provide liquidity. But you're a data guy and you're also known for, you know, picking out markets. So going into 2022, what do you see as being the strong markets and why? I think for the first half of 2022, just pick a market. It's going to be strong. You know, multifamily has come into any market, practically any market in the U S (laughs) I mean, you could take the bottom 5% of markets in the U S they're going to do well. Right. And I'll explain why. So multifamily is starting 2022 with the greatest tailwind of all time. So every multifamily record that I have ever tracked was crushed in 2021. And I don't mean broken, I mean crushed, destroyed, right? So lowest cap rates of all time in dozens of cities, Um, highest rents of all time, highest rent increases of all time, highest price per unit. Uh, You know, it's just, the list is endless, right? So obviously there's a massive tailwind there. There's an incredible amount of liquidity in the marketplace 
and since in the last two years because of COVID, attitudes of you know superstar investors that were invested in office retail and and um, hotels have changed. Right. So just so you know, most office investors three years, five years, ten years ago, you couldn't you know, hold a gun to their head to invest in multifamily because think about what an office investment is. You know, there's a $10 million multifamily. It has a hundred residents. There's a $10 million office building. It has four residents. Those four residents on average have a thousand times the money in the bank that right. the residents in the multifamily do. And they sign five to 10 year leases and very rarely contracts. Right. Right. Why the hell would any office, you know, guy want to do multifamily? Right. With all the delinquencies and the drama and the gunshots and all of those kinds of things that happen with multifamily. All of that changed because with those folks, the office folks, especially office was the largest asset class in the U.S. until 2006, I think. And then it became multifamily. Those guys now see the point. They see how in an environment, in a, in a black swan event, this asset class does much better than hotels, much better than office, much better than retail. And so. Currently, the hunger, the amount of assets that are allocated to purchase multifamily in 2022 are the highest that we've ever started any year with. So obviously, I think most assets will do well. Now, get back to your question, right? So second half yeah. of the year. Right. So obviously, as interest rates go up and I, I'm, you know, there's three Fed meetings in the first half of the year. I think all of them will have quarter point increases. So there's, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, bubbliness. And so markets that are going to do well, I think Tampa is going to do phenomenally well. Um, I think Jacksonville is going to do really well. Miami might do well, but it's a very expensive market. So be careful. Most Floridian markets, especially smaller markets, are, are set up to do really, really well. So I'll name a few for you and you can, you know, figure out if this, that, that makes sense for you. So Winter Haven, um, uh, St. Petersburg, um, uh, Bradenton, uh, Sarasota, um, uh, Cape Coral, Fort Myers. These are all markets that I think are going to do really well. Um, North Carolinian markets are going to do well. You know, we, we hear a lot about Raleigh and Charlotte. Those are the two big cities. But then, you know, let's talk about Chapel Hill. Let's talk about Durham. Let's talk about Winston-Salem and Asheville. One of my personal favorites, Asheville because Beautiful it has a high area. quality of life and is a good looking city. Right. I think those cities are going to do really, really well. You know, Atlanta, I think will continue doing well. Um, the big stars, I think at this point is, is Austin and San Antonio. San Antonio benefits from the incredible Austin halo. Austin home prices last year rose by 41%. That's but no market crazy. in the US was close. Um, and a lot of it is because um, Austin is the most expensive market in Texas, but Austin, and here's, you'll chuckle at this. Austin is the cheapest Texan market in California. <laughs> right? So Austin right. is now a Californian market. It has all forms of Californian market characteristics. It just happens to be in Texas. And when you compare it with Los Angeles, San Diego, and the San Francisco Bay area, it's really cheap. And that's why it can go up 41% in a year. Yeah, that's crazy. Right? And, and, you know, 20 plus percent in rents. And so it's projected to go up and again, another 32% this year. It has the largest inbound movement of um, 
of companies, especially technology companies on a per capita basis compared to any other market in the US. And recently I read that may actually be any other market in the world, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that one. And uh, it also has now become America's favorite place for rich people to buy second homes. So it has the highest percentage of second home buyers. And all of that leads to San Antonio becoming really, really expensive because it's a much larger city than Austin. It's, you know, it's commutable. You can live in North San Antonio and, and commute to South Austin. The Tesla factory is in the middle. You know, you've got the $17 billion Samsung factory. You've got the $10 billion Apple campus. And, you know, a lot of people are like Amazon. It's like, I don't give a shit about Amazon because they build something everywhere, right? They have a million, you know, campuses. So I don't care what Amazon does. But Apple only builds one to two campuses per country, right? And they're building a massive one in Austin. That's what I care about. That matters. Yeah, that, that right? makes sense. And, and their average salaries are, what, three times Amazon? So they create wealth effects, which are very, very strong, extremely strong. And demographers like me are following wealth effects. And so some companies, not all companies are the same. So do you focus on the, on the kind of the, the cities around the major, major markets? Yes, I tend to do that, right? So I'm, I'm obsessed with finding these small cities. So let, let me tell you where I'm invested in. So I have one investment in Austin, even though I've been following it for a long time, just one, just a single investment, okay? And maybe another one that I'm, you know, baking. Working on. But my major investments are in the Austin-San Antonio corridor. I have basically surrounded Austin with my armies. So- North of Austin, 55 miles north of Austin is the city of Killeen. It has a large uh, base, uh, armed forces base. And it's commutable to the richest part of Austin, which is, uh, which is North Austin, right? So that's where Apple is. That's where the domain is. You know, really rich people live there. All the little cities around Austin that are expensive cities are on the north side. This is commutable. So, All right, so, so Killeen, mm-hmm. the, one, the one thing that people talk about with Killeen is, is if is it such a military um, focused place that if there is, you know, uh, something that where everybody is, to, you know, goes on, on duty and, and has to be shipped out that they, they could break their leases. So pe- people are, f- are f- afraid of clean from that perspective. From Absolutely. People are afraid of every city from some perspective. Right. The question is demographers like me, we study to see how often, has that happened to Colleen? The answer is never because of the, because of what goes on in that base. So what you have to do is basically understand that it's a training base, right? People come, they stay for a certain amount of time, usually a year or two, and then they leave. It's a training base for, for, for all parts of the U S training bases very rarely have this kind of content happen because they are transitional in nature anyway, to begin with all the time. Right? So it's very rare that that would happen in Colleen, but let me, let me just say, well, some people are just not comfortable with it. Yeah, but that's only north of Austin. So west is Fredericksburg, where I have a large project. Right. Helene, I just bought a property for 138 units. East is the tiny city of Maynard. It's only 15 miles away. It's only 12 minutes from Tesla. Maynard. Take a look at Maynard. And then south, of course, is the biggest you know, number of choices. So... 30 miles south is San Marcos. That's where the university is. So, you know, big student crowd, uh, but it's completely commutable to any part of Austin, as long as you're willing to commute for 30 to 60 minutes. And then 49 miles south is a very hip 
trendy city of New Brunsfels. So I have a project in San Marcos, a project in New Brunsfels, and I have five projects in, in, in um, San Antonio, which is 70 miles south. Because my belief, my core belief is this, focus and learn more about these kinds of Austin effects. Austin is, you know, according to Elon Musk, is the biggest boom town in, that America's had in 50 years. I think he's absolutely right. Austin is the next San Francisco Bay Area. And who can say that the San Francisco Bay Area was not the biggest boom town in the last 50 years? Clearly it was, right? And that's where people are going from, from you know, San Francisco to, to Austin. And I typically don't make large investments in the boom towns. I make large investments around the boom towns. So I have surrounded Austin in four directions. Yeah, that's huge. I, I remember, may, it was maybe two or three months ago, seeing a presentation you did um, about New Braunfels and mm -hmm. that it was like your number one market, which to me- Well, that's because it's a faster growing market than Austin or San Antonio. In fact, some of its growth statistics are so high that you can take Austin's growth, San Antonio's growth, put it together and, and New Braunfels will beat it. Why? Because it's inside a corridor. One of the key things is, I've always said this in all of my presentations, it's not the cities that matter, it's the corridors. So there's a number of corridors that I've personally benefited from over the years. The, the one that is the oldest corridor that I talked about about four to five years ago is the one in, um, in Florida. So it starts from north of, De you know, from Deltona through Orlando, then going through um, Lakeland, then it goes to Tampa, then it goes south through Sarasota, ends at Cape Coral, Fort Myers. That still is one of the most powerful corridors in the US, but it's not number one anymore. For a while, it was also the corridor from north of Salt Lake City to south of Provo. That's, that was a very powerful corridor and that has become a crazy low cap, three and a half cap market, right? So when I started talking about that corridor in 2017, you could easily pick up a six cap property. Today, you're gonna fight 15, 16 people to buy something at three and a half cap. <laughs> right. Imagine the wealth effect in that corridor. And then, you know, the, the Austin San Antonio one is the most powerful because it is the only corridor that I track where both cities are extremely large and both are commutable. So every other corridor is not commutable. Like, for example, from north of Salt, Salt Lake, let's say Ogden, you can't you can't commute to Provo. But you can definitely live in North San Antonio and commute to South Austin. And, and San Antonio is a larger city than Austin. So this is the unusual effect where the city on fire is smaller than the city that benefits from it. That's a very unusual scenario. So those cities I think will do well, but you know, enough of, of Texas, I think Dallas is a great place to invest in. And once again, look at places that are 30 or 40 or 50 miles away from Dallas rather than Dallas itself, because Dallas is very, very expensive um, for, for, its, for, its, for its income. Right. Sure. One could say Austin's more expensive. Yeah. But look at the incomes. Right. You can't right. compare. That's not that's not a, a way to look at this. And then, you know, Phoenix is incredible. So is uh, Tucson. I think Tucson's a better deal than Phoenix. Phoenix, Phoenix has been on fire. So those are great markets. Uh, Vegas is a great market. I personally don't like Vegas very much, but, it, you know, one has to acknowledge that it the market has all the right fundamentals. Absolutely. I haven't, you know, I'm not investing in, in Vegas at this point in time, but it, I've. I've invested as a limited partner in Vegas. So, you know, from the listener's perspective, like you've heard other guests and myself talk about, you know, markets being, you know, look for population growth, look for income growth, look for job growth. And that's what Neil's talking about here is, is all these places 
you know, they have population growth and, and job growth and income growth, and it's going to continue, you know, not just in the major cities, but surrounding it. Well, uh, I, I, I want to add something to that, right? Yeah. There's a course on Udemy.com. So you just type in Udemy space, Neil Bawa or Udemy.com slash real focus. And you'll see about 10,000 people are taking the course right now. And that course focuses on everything you just mentioned, you know, job growth, income growth, home price growth. How do you calculate it for every city? How do you, how do you compare cities to each other? And until 2020 or 2019, that mattered, but there were other things that mattered as well. Now I'm saying that's all that matters because the United States has had extremely abrupt, extremely sharp slowdowns in population growth. So we have always been a country until 2016, 17, we've been a country that has pretty strong population growth, 0.6, 0.7, 0.8%. Last year, a country of 332 million people added 330,000 people. That's 0.1%. And I know that, you know, there's COVID deaths and et cetera, et cetera. So obviously there's some pieces there, but if I account for COVID deaths, last year was the slowest growth in a century. So at this point of time, demographics are not just becoming the 800 pound gorilla in the room. They're becoming the only thing in the room. The demographic shift from one state to another, from one location to another yep. within the yep. U.S. Yep. And, and, you know, obviously, we, they haven't changed much in the last five years. The same cities are continuing to get population growth. You know, Phoenix, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, you know, Nashville. Um, you've got Tampa, you know, Miami. These cities have been winning for five years. But since, you know, March 2020, when it started, it's accelerated very dramatically. And, and also it's about higher dollar people are moving now since COVID. Right. Let me ask you this, because this is one of the th my thoughts is that even in a downturn, if there's a downturn, I think a lot of these areas are still going to have demographic shifts because if you have a downturn and you're living on, on the coast and you're out of a job, the cost of living is so high. Aren't my thought is you're going to move to where there's new jobs and where there's a, a cheaper cost of living. What's your take on that? Yes. And then I think I agree with that. I want to provide more context though. Sure. 2008 was a very weird recession. It just hit everything because it was the housing market, right? And the housing market was hot everywhere. And so it just was a across the board recession right? So it had every state. But even out of that, look at how some states returned, they bounced back very quickly. So I'll give you a state that bounced back very quickly. Look at the numbers for Utah and how fast it recovered from the Great Recession. Then look at Dallas as a city and how fast Dallas recovered, right? So not only was the, the drop not as precipitous, it was, it was pretty shallow, but the bounce back was very rapid. And so before you knew it, you were out of it, right? So this, this recession, whenever the next recession comes, if it's not broad-based like COVID, what we've seen in most recessions in US history is that the weak cities and the weak states tend to take the longest, they go down the most, and they, they take the longest to come back. That's a typical recession. Didn't happen in 2008, because that was broad-based, the US economy, right? The, the housing market. 
And then it didn't happen in 2020. But in most, in even those cases, which was a 50 state recession, even then some states recovered way faster than others. And now in an environment where the U.S. Um, you know, population growth, net population growth is almost, I don't want to say zero because I feel bad about saying that, it's close <laughs> to zero. Right. I mean, this is all that matters. How do you justify the continued construction of real estate in an area where the population is dropping? Right. I don't understand how. You can do it for a short amount of time because there's a, a you know, there's, there's some you know, gap there, there's uh, units being obsoleted, but in the long run, how do you make it work? I, I just feel like a lot of these cities, especially in the Midwest, it, that have no population growth are basically built on, you know, the, this is all Lego blocks and, and they're not very good Lego blocks. Maybe, and maybe that's not, it's card, cards, right? It, it's easy for those economies to get knocked down because firstly, they, they're low income and second, they're low population growth. But there's, you know, but there's jewels too. I mean, Columbus, Ohio is incredible. You know, Kansas City, Indianapolis, these are Rust Belt cities that are, that have significant continuous population growth. So there's, there's a lot there. But what I find that I get shocked by is that I am being told by people that somehow cap rates in Cleveland can be as low as cap rates in Columbus or Indianapolis or Kansas City. And that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Right. That simply tells me that the people that are investing in Cleveland don't understand the difference between a economy that's been losing population for 40 years and an economy like Columbus, which has been gaining population at a high speed for 40 years. There's a massive difference between those two. So there's a mispricing of risk there. That's, that's shocking. That, that's, a, that's a great point. Great point. Hey, another thing that you, another area that you have talked about, um, and has become more of a, a discussion point, more people are shifting to is, is build to rent, BTR. So talk about what your thoughts are for, for that segment. First of all, you know, for the listener's perspective, what is build to rent? And, you know, why are people shifting in that direction? Sure. Anything short of apartments that's new construction is built to rent. So single family homes built specifically to be rented and duplexes, townhomes, that were built from the very beginning to be rented. Another way of saying it is, it's some sort of low density rental housing, which means that no apartment can be considered built to rent, right? Because they're high density, right? Multiple stories, people above you, people next to you. So the, the, the BTR revolution, which is by far the hottest part of real estate anywhere in the US, but specifically in, in Texas and, and Arizona, but Anywhere in the U.S., BTR is still the hottest part of, um, of all, all forms of real estate. It started off with single family and it started off in Phoenix where there's, there's a company that, that did it for a while. And what they learned was very interesting, Darren. You know, when, when we're in multifamily, we look at, you know, rents first. And yes, you should, right? But there's expenses. And part of the biggest expense is churn. How often do people leave? If people are leaving every 18 months, you're not going to make a huge amount of money. But if people are leaving every 36 months, you're going to make a lot more money because all of your transition costs, your marketing costs, your, your you know, loss to lease is pretty much gone because you can keep raising rents now for three years instead of raising rent, you know, having to basically start from scratch every 18 months. And so the people that are above our level, you know, we're talking about people with $10 billion portfolios. They studied 
the early built to rent communities that were built in the 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18 uh, timeframe. And what happened is by 2018, these single family communities, they, and they're not large single families, by the way, like the typical single family uh, in these built to rent communities, the typical rental unit is like 900 square feet, 800 square feet. Oh, wow. So it's, it's almost like the apartments. There's the size of apartments, but they're individual freestanding units. They have a postage stamp size backyard and a postage stamp size front yard, but you're on a, a home, but, and they have great amenities. So they've got better amenities than an average, average apartment complex, you know, slightly bigger pool and things like that. You know, more dog runs, they're more built for families. Cause you know, sure. people want to live in single family homes and have that nice backyard with the ability to grill and stuff like that. So when they, when this stuff started in 2015 and 16, a lot of industry people are watching it and saying, Hmm, it looks interesting, but you know, Hey, they're not using land efficiently. Right now they were actually using them pretty efficiently. A lot of these built rent communities have 12, 13, 14 single family homes per acre. A subdivision only has six. So they were actually cramming them in with the postage SAM size backyards and front yards. And they were getting pretty good value, but not as much as apartments because you can get 25 to 30 apartments per acre, right? So people are like, ah, this is, this is not as very, very efficient. But then in 2017, 18, these properties started to sell for the first time after they were built and people started to buy them. And so when they came on the market, people realized they, they got a chance to actually read the numbers and look at the profits. And that's when it blew up because what people realized is the churn is non-existent. People live in these like they like it's their home. Nobody's leaving. And so you can raise rents three, four years in a row. And by the time you own it for three or four years, your profit per unit is 50% higher than multifamily. That's a, that's a great point. Right? So people were not looking at, at this correctly. And so in 18, 19 is when people started to realize this sucker is more profitable than multifamily. And it, it's more resilient. People will not leave. They want to live there and it still is multifamily because it's only 800 square feet. It's not right. a 2000, you know, square foot mega mansion. Right. Right. And people were still making huge amounts of money. Like, you know, Blackstone bought 80,000 single family homes and then had to deal with all the headaches of maintenance here. It's in one community. It's inside one community. You've got centralized maintenance. You've got centralized leasing and it's brand new. So you don't have, you know, maintenance costs. It's so much better. And Blackstone made a humongous amount of money from those 80,000 homes, despite all of the problems that they have. And BTR doesn't have any of those problems. And remember, 40 to 50% more in net profit per unit. That's so am that's amazing. this became very obvious by 2019. And you know, more and more people started to look at creating funds. Then COVID happened. The cost of money fell to zero in April, 2020. So between April, 2020 and today, which is not even two years, right? But this is, you know, we're in February, 2022. In those 20 months, $76 billion has been raised for build to rent. Oh. And that's unlevered. Wow. So you leverage it, you're going to get more than $200 billion. So it's the largest phenomenon in, in U.S. real estate history. I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because, I, one, I didn't realize that they were that small. I thought that they probably were going to be like 1,500 square feet. So it doesn't, the math doesn't work, right? So right. The, what makes the mathematics work is the small size. Yeah. So some of them are 700 square feet, two bedrooms are 850, three bedrooms are 1,000. Okay. Basically, they're the same size as apartment. There's no difference in size, but there's a difference in height. A lot of them are 10 feet high. A lot of them are 11 feet high. The ones I build are 10 feet high on the first floor, and then they're 16 feet high on the second floor, penthouses. I build stacked 
built built to rent. So that four units in one building, as opposed to you know one unit at a time. That's also considered built to rent townhomes. Now, if I built them very high density, if it would, they were just like long rows of townhomes, that wouldn't be considered built to rent. Uh, but you know, here it's 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 the four units. Everyone's got windows on two to three sides, so it's a different kind of feel. So they're taller. They've got some features that that single family you know home that that um, apartments don't have. But if they were as big as a uh, as single family, the mathematics wouldn't work. Right, that makes sense. Hey, so um, we are coming to a close. Like, so what is your next big stretch goal? Well, I want to tokenize my assets. So we talked about that. So you might be one of the first guys out there to, to really do that. At, a, at scale. Yeah. We're looking to tokenize 70 million in equity. So that's, you know, people have done it already. I'm not a pioneer there. I'm actually wouldn't be interested in doing it if I was the first. So four years ago, the first multifamily in the U.S. was tokenized in New York and it was a dismal failure. They never raised the money. Right. So we learned from that process. And then 2019, a student housing property in uh, South Carolina was done and they had some challenges. So now we have four years of like understanding what the heck this stuff is. So can't call myself a pioneer. I'll just say I'm an early adopter. Early adopter. There you go. Right. So tokenization is big. Built to rent, I think, is absolutely astonishing. I just think it's a better way of being a tenant. If you had the choice between an 800 square foot apartment and an 800 square foot single family home. If there was a woman involved, it's no contest, right? She will absolutely never pick the apartment. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Hey, what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Um, play cricket, grow tomatoes. I, I, I obsess cricket, about so, having the highest tomato yield. So I'm a tomato farmer. <laughs> Are you really? So cricket, that can last days, right? Well, that's the, the older version. So okay. obviously over time, cricket has been democratized. The version that I like the most is about three hours long. So it's okay. you know, maybe half an hour longer than a baseball game. So all right, it, all right. The, the older version, yeah, I, I still read about it. But I don't, <laughs> don't have the time to play. I'm like, I don't know how you get the, you know, the family to agree for you to go out for three days, you know? To I, I don't even know how that five days of cricket even lasts today. It should just be gone. I like the short version. <laughs> All right. Very good. So tomatoes and um, was there something else? Cricket and tomatoes. Well, I, I think I also strive for balance in my life. I think that's very key. I, I find that people become so addicted to success that they want to succeed for the sake of success. They want to succeed simply because they've been succeeding and that high gets to them. I'm very obsessed with the idea of creating balance in my life. So I spend a great deal of time working on that and thinking about that. So for example, I don't work Fridays. I play golf. I think about stuff. If there's things I'm trying to solve, that's all on my calendar. I take two hour long massages. I go, I get professionally stretched. I, I do a bunch of things in my life. I take six vacations a year, right? So there are people who are like, I work 80 hours a week. And I'm like, right. I never work 80 hours a week. I, you know, I try to work 35 hours a week and have 16 assistants that basically do the remaining 40 hours. So balance is very important to me. I think that's fantastic. And I think that, look, if you think of investments, right? And that's what we're mostly talking about here is, is investments in, in different real estate. You invest financially, but you know, in your life, you really need to invest in experiences, you know, with your, your family and for yourself, like 
that's what life is all about, right? It's like those memories that you're going to make if you just work to just to get a bigger number. Then and then I'm the willing balance. to take risks for it. Right. So in, from December 17th to January 3rd, I was in three continents with my family. We had six COVID tests. Nobody got COVID, but we, were, we had contingency plan in case we did. We started off in Istanbul. We went to Cairo and then we ended up celebrating New Year's in Dubai, very over the top. Um, because I, you know, I'm vaccinated now. I'm not, I don't have lost my fear of COVID. What's the worst that can happen? Somebody has to stay behind, fine. You know, it'll cost some money and, and we'll, we'll do things. But the statistical, the statistics are that there was a one in 25 chance that somebody will get COVID during a vacation. We were careful, right? We weren't stupid. And I'm fine with taking that chance since, even on a vacation that spans three continents. And I think too many people are afraid. I, there's, there was a reason to be afraid. I mean, I'm 50 years old. So I was afraid until I got my first shot. And beyond that, I just, it's like, I'm going to just live my life. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that. Hey, if somebody wants to reach out to you or get to know you better, what's the best way for them to do that? The easiest is just type in Neil Bawa into Google, N-E-A-L-B-A-W-A. You'll see uh, a few hundred podcasts. You'll see a few hundred, you know, webinars and seminars, some courses. This, the, the website way, if you want everything in one place is www.multifamilyu.com. That's multifamily followed by the letter u.com. That's where all of our webinars are stored. Uh, the webinar you talked about, you know, real estate trends, I talk about about a hundred cities in it and that was just done last month. So it's on the website. Take a look. Fantastic. Neil, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, listeners, that was a treat. I mean, this guy, he, he's in the know and um, he's got some great advice. So listen up and uh, get to know him. So check him out on the web and uh, appreciate you guys listening. And until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>